0: If you've got your Bibles, go to Romans chapter one. We're going to um, continue in our uh, series on the letter to the Romans. Paul wrote this letter to a church in Rome. Um, a, a quick summary: so he he has not ever been to Rome or, or hasn't been to Rome since he has uh, trusted Jesus. He did not has not been there on a missionary journey. He did not start the church in Rome. He has met a few believers from the church in Rome in different places, in Corinth or in Ephesus or or, um, Laodicea. But but he has not been to Rome, and so he's writing them to say, hey, listen, I'm Paul. This is my gospel, um, the same gospel you know, and I celebrate your faith, and I can't wait to get to you. I'm eager to come to where you are, and I'm eager to do that because... um, what I'm what I'm bringing you is a gospel, and this gospel is um, is the most powerful, um, the, the most powerful thing that we could ever know in this life. I want to give some context. We're only going to look at two verses today, and I know some of you are like. Man, we're never going to get through Romans if we only do two verses at a time. And, and I would say that this is probably the only week we're ever going to do two verses. But these two verses, um, th- this is like the heart of It's like the theme of Romans. It's like everything else in Romans is unpacking these two verses. So I, I'm slowing down here next week. going will be a whole bunch of verses, and you'll be like, I wish we slowed down. Um, or maybe not. I don't know. But I, I, I dream like that. I dream, this is what I dream about. It's people saying, no, 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 let's preach longer and go slower. Um, so, I mean, guys, has got to have dreams. All right, so I want to read the, the, the passage. I'm going to, um, we're just looking at verses 16 and 17, but I'm going to back up and start in verse 14 to give us a little context, kind of a little runway, and then we're just going to look at those two verses. But here's what Paul says, um, I'm picking up chapter 1, verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray you would open our minds and help us to understand um, that your Spirit would would do that work in us so that these are not just black letters on a white page or on a screen, but, but Father, that we would encounter them as the living Word of God, what you've revealed and inspired, what you've preserved. Father, would you by your Word draw us who are weak to the strength of your Son, Jesus? Father, would you draw us who are in darkness to the light of your Son, Jesus? We are more dependent upon you than any of us in this room knows or can comprehend. But, Father, would you, by your grace, help us and draw us to your Son and that we would experience the good news of the gospel today. So we pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I, I want to what I want to do is I want to start by telling you a little bit of a, of um, the story of Martin Luther. And I, I do that because um, Romans, you, you can go out throughout the history of, of the church over the last 2,000 years, and you can, like we said a few weeks ago, you can point to significant times in church history, and, and Romans has been there. And so, it is, um, Romans is the, is the letter um, through which uh, Augustine was reading in, in chapter 13, and, and his, the scales fell off, and his eyes were opened, and he comes to faith in Jesus. And um, you, you, you can see that about um, Wesley, and you, you can see that about oh uh, a handful of, of other significant uh, men in the history of the church in significant times in the church But these two verses, Romans 16 and 17, are particularly significant because they are the verses through which Luther came to understand what the gospel really was. And Martin Luther in the 16th century, more accurately, probably somewhere between 1515 and 1517, came to understand what God had done to, to afford or to, to bring about salvation into the world, of which he then uh, found himself partaking. And, and so Martin Luther saved, and that's all cause to rejoice right there. But, but at the same time, what it does is it not just ignites Luther on fire, it actually ends up sparking the Protestant Reformation and setting the world on fire in many ways. The world changed 500 years ago, in a way that it had not changed in 1,500 years. And Luther, from this small little church in Wittenberg, will take on 1,500 years of tradition in the Catholic Church. And we sit here today because of Luther's understanding of these two verses. I'll tell you a little bit about him. He was born in 1483, and incidentally, you want to know more about Luther? Eric Metaxas has a good... A Luther biography. Um, and, and so, I, I commend that to you. It's a good one. There are several good ones. Um, so, he's born in 1483. He's born to Hans and Margaret. His dad's a minor. His mom takes care of kids. Um, he's born in Mansfield. Um, uh, well, no, he, he's born in um, Iceland, Ben. And then in, at age 14, he goes to Mansfield because he's going to go to this, um, it's called the Latin School. And it was a school that was a preparatory for law school. And so he goes at the age of 14 and he excels. He, he is a, he's a fantastic scholar. He has a great aptitude for the languages. I mean, L- Luther is um, uh, um, everything a law school would have been looking for forward to his father really wanted him to be a lawyer and so anyways he, he gets through this school he's um, uh, 20 years old he graduates from the Latin school gets in, enters into the law school his first year and he's headed home and on this trip home he's in a horse and there's a chariot and he's, and he's driving and a storm comes up and there's big lightning and and this is the first of four sort of major crisis in Luther's life The lightning strikes, he gets thrown off the horse or out of the carriage. And he's terrified, believing that his death may come. And he cries out the only way he knows to with regard to his religion at the time. And he prays to St. Anne. And he cries out to St. Anne, help me St. Anne. And if you do, I will become a monk. And that's a desperate prayer right there, all right? And so it it happens that he he does. He survives it. He gets home, and um, two two weeks later, he actually contemplates. Well, maybe nobody heard that, um, you know. But but his conscience wouldn't let it go, and he had made a vow. And so, to his father's great disappointment, Luther unenrolled from law school, and 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 went um, to this monastery to become a monk. So he 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 began life in a monkery, if you will. All right, uh, they're called monasteries, but I think monkery's funnier. So, uh, so so he 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 goes and he does that. And in fact, he'll write about this that he he excelled even in that. He said he said, you know, I outmonked all the monks. I mean, I was I was better than all of them and. Um, but the problem was, so so in in, in that day, you, you trained to be a monk. You were training to be a priest. You were going to serve a, a parish. You, your your content, well, what you were responsible for studying was you needed to know church history. You needed to know the canons of the church. You needed to know the literature, literature uh, liturgy, and the language of the church to perform the ceremonies. But most of the priests, most of the monks of the day, did not study the Bible. But Luther was. Um, Um, so captured by God's Word that he would spend hours upon hours every day studying the Bible. His practice was he read through the Bible twice a year, probably more than that. And he, But as he read it, there were these phrases that began to stick with him and they began to cause this terror inside of him. They were, they were things like the law of God or the justice of God or the righteousness of God. And he began to envision God as this angry God ready to pour his wrath out. And who he was going to pour his wrath out through was through his son Jesus, who was the stern judge, um, ready to come and to, and, and to wipe humanity away at any moment. He found himself terrified. In fact, he'd said, if you'd have asked me if I love God, I would say, Love God. Sometimes I find I hate him. And he was so Conflicted, and he tried everything he could to get right with God and to, and to cleanse his conscience over all of the sin. And so, what he would do is he'd go to these confessions, uh, d- you know, during the day, and he, and he, you know, whoever the unlucky priest was that drew Luther, you know, he would sit there and listen to Luther tell about his sins for like two and three hours, and it was minutia. I mean, it was everything that he'd done or thought of or 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 or, or um, th- that came to his mind in the last twenty four hours. And so, finally, you know, one of the priests who was his friend said to him, said. Luther, go away and commit a real sin, and then come back. He would, he would take and injure himself, and um, sleep with uh, in the winter with no blanket to 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 make himself cold. All of these things to try to cleanse his conscience, to try to prove to God that he truly was pious. And that's in the years 1505 to 1510. The second crisis came in 1510 when there was this great opportunity presented to Luther. There were some things going on in Germany with the church and how it was related to Rome. And they felt like they were uh, being, um, uh, that some things were not fair. And so the, uh, the guy who was the head of the church in Germany was going to send two monks to go to Rome to, to engage in some talks. And so Luther was chosen to do that. And if you were a, a Christian of the time, and, and particularly if you were a monk or training to be the priest, you, going to Rome would have been your lifelong journey to make the pilgrimage to Rome because that is where they believed, the tradition told them, that Peter had started the church. Peter was the first pope. He was there in Rome, and, and, and Paul had been martyred in Rome. And in fact, there was this church, St. John's of the and which if you've been to Rome, maybe you've been there, and they have these steps. And the steps are supposedly, as the legend goes, they were the steps that Jesus had stood on had climbed to meet, um, to stand before Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. And that in the 4th century, the soldiers had come and taken step by step all these steps over to Rome. And they had put it there at the, at the entrance, entranceway to this church cathedral, St. John of Lateran. And so you, you wanted to go and what they would do is pilgrims would come and they would, they would um, you know, pull their pants up so their knees were exposed and they would take these concrete steps and you would, you would climb the steps on your knees and you would do it in a rough way so that you could cause your knees to bleed and, and it, was, it was a very painful um, process, but you were doing it because at every step then you would stop and you would pray and you, would, um, you, you, you might injure yourself on top of it and you would ask for mercy and you were trying to earn some, some goodness that would keep you out of purgatory for a while and it was all of this piousness and, and these things that you were trying to do to get to God. And Luther had been so excited about the trip and he said it was the longest journey and the greatest disappointment of his life. He's halfway up the steps, and his knees are bleeding, and he's gone through all the motions, and two things happen. One, he begins to hear in his, it, the, the voice inside of his head, which he, he, he attributed to God, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith. And at the same time, he's noticing all the other priests and monks and people serving the, the cathedral, and the flippancy and irreverence in which they're doing it and he doesn't even make it to the top he just stands up turns around and says who can know if any of this is even real So that's 1510. He goes back. In 1515, he goes back. He gets assigned to Wittenberg, and he begins to teach the Bible every day. In fact, Luther, um, this third crisis, was actually born out of his study of God's Word, but the teaching of God's Word. He would teach sometimes one, two, three times a day, as many as 15 to 18 times a week. His schedule was incredible. And he began to teach through the Psalms, and then he taught through Romans, and then he taught through Galatians, then he taught through Hebrews, and he went back to the Psalms. And it's somewhere in here between the Hebrews and the Psalms for the second time that Luther, um, the, the, the Scriptures broke open to him. He had come and he had found himself at this crisis and he couldn't get past these words of Paul when he had encountered them in his teaching in Romans 1 16 and 17 and he couldn't get past this idea of the righteousness of God but he continues to teach and he continues to struggle and then one day he's reading a commentary written by Augustine and he comes back to this verse and it says in the very first time he began to understand what the gospel was and he ends it by saying I came to the verse I understood and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. And the world began to change because of the power of God through the gospel in Martin Luther's life. And I want to tell you this morning that maybe you're here and you've never encountered the gospel. Maybe you've never believed that. Maybe you've, you've struggled as even a, maybe a religious person but have never found peace or your conscience cleansed, wondering what else it is you must do for God or how to get to Him. Or will He ever be pleased with you? And maybe this morning you've just shown up and you go, you know what, I've, I've already given up on all that. I've, I mean, I'm here this morning, somebody asked me, or, or, you know, I've had a tough time and I came because this is a good place and, and maybe... Um, some time of solitude and prayer would be good, but but I've given up on all that. And I would just say this morning that what we are going to hear about the gospel and what Paul will unpack for another 15 chapters, th- these aren't just words, and this, this isn't just a... A, you know, a talk about um, what, what the Bible is in, in relation to, to what we believe, that this actually, what we're doing, that there is the power of God in this. In fact, that's exactly what Paul's going to say. And so I, I just want to tell you this morning, I invite you. Would you be open to be overwhelmed by the power of God this morning? Maybe you never have been. He can do that. Look with me again. Paul tells him, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's telling the people of Rome, he's maybe telling them that because they, it may be in the criticism from Rome had been, hey, well, well, Paul's gone everywhere else and he says he's the apostle to the Gentiles, but he hasn't ever come to Rome. Maybe he thinks that gospel will do fine over in Tyre and Sidon, and maybe maybe he thinks that gospel will be just fine in Antioch and in Corinth and in Lystra, but, but Paul, he doesn't have the guts to come here. This is the imperial city. This is the place of the who's who. This is the intellectual capital of the world. Paul is not willing to come here and give us this gospel. And Paul wants them to know, no, I've been eager to come to you. I've been wanting to come. The Spirit of God has thus far prevented me, but now I'm on my way. And I want you to know, by the way, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Which is a fascinating, profound statement when you think about the relationship that Paul has had with the gospel in his life. If you, you, so we looked at it a couple weeks ago. He's he saved on the road to Damascus. Jesus shows up and says, why are you persecuting me? And he's face to face with Jesus, and he's converted and he's saved. And, but, but, but after that, I want you to know, I mean, sometimes we have this idea that, that Christianity, I mean, I, maybe we, we, we seemingly like we sell it this way. I mean, come to, come to faith in Jesus and, and all your dreams will come true. Um, You know, like we'll roll out the red carpet and, you know, you get a, um, you come to faith and you'll get a, um, you know, a t-shirt with your church's name on it. And uh, then you you get to be in a, um, a small group that's super satisfying because all the couples are really awesome and nobody has any problems. And you do small group for 50 years and vacation with your grandchildren. And, and then you have, like, this cool guy's, you know, accountability group, and everybody's really great, and all the guys you ever wanted to be friends with, and they think you're really... Or the you go into a women's Bible study, and they're really all perfect and sanctified, and nobody ever does anything mean or hurt your feelings, or... I mean, you know, um, all of a sudden, you know, you turn on the radio, and Christian music sounds good to you, and, you know, stuff like that. I mean, some of... I'm not saying it's not good. I mean, some of it really is. But then all the other stuff sounds good to you as well. <laughs> and you know, just like, man, you, you know, and you get to be in the Dave Ramsey Club, and all your finances work out, and just I mean, everything's just really great. And, and yet, I, I'm telling you, I, I don't, so we, we sell it, maybe we hope for it, I, I don't know, but that's, that's not the experience of anyone in the New Testament. I mean, oh, there's great joy. Oh, they wouldn't choose anything else. Oh, they're willing to die for what it is that Jesus has done in their life because they would, they'd never recant from that, but it is not easy. I mean, so Paul, he's, he's saved and he goes back to Jerusalem. He can't wait to tell the disciples. And they're like, whoa, get away, man. We're scared of you. So he's shunned there. He's feared. And in Jerusalem, he gets mobbed. In Athens, he's called simple and stupid. And in Lystra, he's stoned and left for dead. And, and he's chased out of Thessalonica, had to be smuggled out of Berea. In Philippi, in Philippi, they beat him with rods. Yet Paul says, I'm not, ash- I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I may have been shamed because of the gospel, but I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then he calls it the gospel. And the gospel simply means it's good news. It, it, it's, it's, it's something that you shout about. It's not something you, you, you talk politely about. At, 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 you know, over over a cup of tea, it, it's something you you get worked up about. I mean, it's like I remember when my my, my first daughter was born, uh, Maggie, and I mean, she she's born, and we come out to the waiting room, and it's like she's here, Maggie's here, you know, and everybody starts doing the you know, line dancing and all that stuff. I mean, it's something to get excited about because it's good news. And he says he's not ashamed. Um, because uh, he he wants him to know he's not ashamed because of this. It is the power of God for salvation. There's only a couple of things referred to as the power of God through all of Scripture. One of them is Jesus. The other is the Word of God about Jesus for salvation. It's the power of God. It's the word that later, way later in history, we'll get the word dynamite from in our language, dunamos. But so sometimes you hear people say, "Yeah, it was, but you know, the, the, the gospel is like a dynamite, and, and it blows everything up." And it's like, "Well, no, I didn't, he, they didn't know anything about dynamite back then." But what he does mean is that it is powerful. And he's talking about the power of God, the power of God that with a word created the heavens and the earth, the power of God that brings life into existence, that can, bring, that can breathe life, um, uh, take things that are dead and make, and make them alive. It's the power of God. And he holds all things together. And, and of all the things that are the power of God, this, this... This has the possibility to bring men and women who are spiritually dead to spiritual life. It is dynamic. It is at at work. It gets in you, and it changes you. You, you don't, and when you encounter the gospel, you don't just encounter words. You're not just encountering a proposition. You're not just encountering a set of truths, although you are encountering all those things. But more than all of that, you are encountering a person, a powerful person, the most powerful ever through Jesus, his son. He comes the power of God for salvation. In this word salvation, it is simple. It means to save. And then, and then the way that it's used, all these different ways. The nouns use several ways. The verbs used several ways in, in, in various tenses. It means that, you know, that, that right now you can be saved from the penalty of sin. That you know, if the wages of sin or death, as Paul is going to say, um, that you, you, you've sinned, you've rebelled. What you have earned, you've earned death and judgment. But the gospel comes along and says, no, 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 you can actually have something else. You can be set free. You can be rescued from. You can be saved from the penalty of sin. Salvation is also used in a way to talk about not just salvation in the present or salvation as something that's happened in the past, but, but salvation, the ongoing salvation, the thing that's happening now and will continue to happen, your sanctification, not just the Pre- the, the penalty of sin but now you can be saved from the power of sin by the presence of the Holy Spirit. You can walk not in your flesh but in the Spirit. And then Paul looks forward at times and says that you, you, you can be um, saved from not just the penalty and not just the power. There's a day we look forward to we long to be saved from the presence of sin. Our justification and our sanctification and Ultimately, our glorification, the fullness of salvation from God. There's a old story. I hesitate to tell it because I botched it the first hour, okay? So, two, two things I'll say about it. Um, one, it's super nerdy, you know, but your, your brain needs a break here for a second, so I understand that. Um, but two, um, I, so... And, and so, if you have to tell people what you're illustrating, that's probably not great. So, but I'm talking about the the language to be saved. And there's an old story um, about. So, the Salvation Army started over in London in the, in the 1800s, and. Um, the way they used to do it, and, and really it set the pace for how tent revivals, and even this deal, um, this this festival that we're doing that, um, October 5th and 6th that's coming up in a couple of months, even this deal, this Luis Palau deal that 350 churches are coming together, and we're going to invite friends to, and all that stuff, even this, it, it, it finds its history from back here, and the, what they used to do, Salvation Army, is they would, somebody would, you know, they'd have several people stand up, and they'd tell their testimony about how they were saved, and how they encountered the power of God, you know, the gospel and the power of God for salvation, and they'd tell the story, and then somebody would get up, and they would, they would open God's word, and they would read, and they would make a gospel presentation, and then what they would do is the Salvation Army, they'd train their people, and they would go out, and they would begin to strike up conversations, and sometimes you'd have the, the people, they would look and say, okay, well, that, that person looks, you know, particularly sinful, so I'll go to him and, and ask him if they can be saved, so there's this new gal, the story goes, and she's new to the Salvation Army, and this is her first gig, and she looks at the back of the crowd, um, they'd all be standing, and there was a guy in clerical robes, um, Anglican priest. So she thinks, well, that guy probably needs the gospel. So she goes to him, she says, sir, are you saved? And so then the guy looks at her in sweet fatherly tone, and he says, well, in, in what sense do you mean? And then he says, do you mean esothene, sothice, sesnomenos, sozomenos? And she looked at him extremely puzzled because now he's literally speaking Greek. And he begins to give her a course on Pauline theology. You're saved in the past? Is that what you mean? Have I been saved and the effects are continuing in the present time? Is it been saved? Are you talking about being saved now in the present time? Are you talking about the hope of being saved in the future? Turns out the guy was this greatest Greek scholar. Bishop Westcott, evangelical, and and was helping her understand what we should understand about this is that when Paul talks about this, he's talking about the full sense of the salvation of God. And notice that it is to everyone who believes it is a universal offer it is extended to everyone in its individual, in its application. Everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. It is the first explicit statement of how we receive the gospel. This power comes to us as we believe. Notice, Paul, there's boundaries and it is it doesn't have any bound is is boundary less on the other side. It's it's to everyone. But to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then the Gentile. We'll talk more about that later in Romans, but it's Talking chronologically there. And he says all of this. I'm not ashamed because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And why is it? Why is the gospel the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes? And he explains it beginning in verse 17. It's because the righteousness of God gets revealed. In other words, the gospel is the power of God for salvation all that believe because when we do we receive a righteousness of God. Now what this simply means in fact Paul will talk righteousness all in Romans more than any other place in others writings and more than any other place in all the Bible it is really the heart and soul of Romans and the heart and soul of God's word is what does it mean that, that God would reveal his righteousness to us in a way that we could receive it. You see, the, the righteousness of God, what you talk about is you talk about the righteousness and you think of the justice of God and the fairness of God and the perfection of God, the beauty of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God. It is everything that God is and that we're not. And to stand in God's presence, to be in God's presence, we have, we have to have The righteousness of God to be in His presence. And it's not like, you know, our unrighteousness or our sin is going to stain Him or get Him dirty. That's not it. It's we can't literally survive in His presence without righteousness. And righteousness is Communicated to us as God's divine standard. It's like this is what's acceptable. This is the holy divine standard of what's acceptable. Jesus sums it up in Matthew chapter 22 when he says, Here it is, if you want it. And somebody said, Well, what's the greatest commandment? He said, Well, here, this sums up everything love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And the second one's like it love your neighbor as yourself. And and I would just say this morning that if somehow you're counting on yourself or you're thinking you can save yourself or you're trying to get to God or please God, this is the ultimate standard. And what Jesus means is, listen, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and that you haven't faltered from that for one second since the day you took your very first breath and that you have so perfectly Indeed and motive and thought, loved him, and your neighbor as yourself. So I don't know about you. I don't I don't want to stand up and give an account for I don't want to know my grade on that. But I can tell you what it's not, it's not a hundred. It's not perfect. What's the requirement for being saved? You have to have the righteousness that God has, and none of us do. The gospel, the reason it becomes good news is what we discover is that what God demands of you, He gives you, and it is received by faith. Here's what Luther ended up saying about verse 17. He said, I have been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans, but a single word in chapter 1, verse 17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, stood in my way. For I hated that word righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand is the righteousness with which God punishes the unrighteous sinner." Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat persistently upon Paul at Romans 1.17, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. And at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, it is the righteousness of God is in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. And here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. I began to see that God revealing His righteousness was not a terror or danger to me. It was His great mercy because he reveals it through the gospel. Now, in chapter 3, we get to see more and more of what Paul will unpack about this, but here's how Luther was thinking about life with God. And I I think it's the natural way for us to think, and I think probably so many of us in this room default to this way of thinking about righteousness, and it was what tripped Luther up. And, and, the, and the idea is this, is that so we, we say, okay, we must have some degree of righteousness. Everybody's got a degree of righteousness. There's one guy that's got 20%, and one guy that's got 50% righteousness, another guy's got 80%, you know, one's like a convict, and the other's, you know, just a regular old moral guy, and, you know, the other one's like a real religious guy. And, and, and so, what happens is, is that, you know, the, 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 the guy with only 20% comes to God and says, Well, you know, I haven't done so well. I mean, I got like 20% righteousness, God. I, I mean, I need some big help here. I, I need 80%. And I got my I got my little 20%. I mean, and I've done that, but if you give me the 80%, and so that guy calls the 80% grace. Well, then you got the 50-50 guy, and he's, you know, 50% righteousness, he's pretty moral. He thinks, you know, not so bad, you know, half the people are worse than me, half the people are better than me. Scott, I, listen, I've come halfway. God, if you can meet me halfway here, and that grace is what makes up the rest of it, you know, that I just, I just didn't get to. Or the 80%, the one that says, look, I've done everything I can, and I've, listen, I've, I've, I've tried to knock off all the stuff that I can do in my life, and I've gotten to 80%, but God, I just, I'm going to need your help for the last bit to get me over the line. And see, that's how we tend to think, but the Bible teaches something entirely different. Here's what the Bible says. You want to know what the Bible says? You don't have 20%, you don't have 50%, you don't have 80%. You know how much you have? You have 0%. In Romans chapter 3.10 after he has just analyzed the guy who's the 20%, the guy who's the 50%, the, guy who's the that's the outline for the next couple of weeks. He's going to say, no one is righteous. No, not one. In fact, the Old Testament will say about us, your righteousness, your good deeds, your efforts, everything you're doing to try to please God, it is a filthy rag. You don't have it, and you never will. Because the only things that can be done that are righteous, the only good things that can come are the, are the things that proceed out of faith. You cannot serve and love a triune God without the faith to do it. In fact, Paul will say it in Romans 14, 23. Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. See, we just thought it was the bad stuff we did. It's all the stuff we do that doesn't come from faith. And how can you have faith unless the gospel is presented? until so the power of God comes upon you to believe. Right standing with God has nothing to do with what we're, we bring to the table, it has nothing to do with our effort, it has nothing to do with our goodness or our stability or our loyalty or any of those things. It has everything and only. To do with what God has revealed and given to us. To be received, by faith. There's a old baseball card. Um, it's one of those future stars baseball cards where they would come out at the beginning of the season. They got three players on them. I'll tell you about one that's worth a thousand dollars. The the first guy on there is a guy named Jeff Schneider. He was a pitcher in the major leagues, only pitched one year, only pitched in 11 games, gave up 13 earned runs in those 11 games. And if you don't know baseball, that's bad. The second guy is a name, guy named Bobby Bonner. He played for four years, had um, uh, 11 um, uh, hits in, in four years and no home runs. And, and also, if you don't know baseball, that's bad. But there's a third guy on this, on this um, card, he's a guy who ended up playing for 21 years for the Baltimore Orioles, appeared in over 3,000 games, came to bat 11,500 times, over 3,100 runs batted in, uh, I mean, uh, hits, 431 home runs, over almost 1,700 runs uh, batted in, and, and his name is Cal Ripken, Jr., and that's why the card's worth 1000 bucks. And it would be ridiculous if you met Jeff Snyder and said, Hey, Jeff, what do you do? He so, said, What I do now doesn't matter. But did you know my baseball card's worth $1,000? dollars <laughs> they like, Jeff, Cal Ripken's baseball card's worth $1,000, and you happen to be on it. But you did nothing to contribute to the value. In fact, it just probably, it'd probably be worth more if you weren't on there. And I'm sorry if somehow Jeff Snyder's here this morning. Um, But, I mean, that's it. We don't bring anything. Our value, our worth, everything we are, our ability to stand before God in the righteousness He requires comes only through the gospel, through what it is that Jesus has done. Because what God demands, He has given to us to be received by faith. And that's what he says, for faith to faith, it's faith from the beginning to the end. And there's never a point in your life that you will not need faith. I I want to reiterate that. You will not get old enough, mature enough, studied enough, degreed enough, um, holy enough, uh, special enough. You You will never in this life walk one step in which you are not required to walk in faith. You'll never come to a place where I empirically understand everything. I am done with faith. It has been nice and hang it on the wall. God will always draw you further than your knowledge of Him so that you are dependent upon Him. And that is the joy and excitement of living the Christian life by faith. Received in faith and lived out in faith. And the truth is, this is offensive. This whole gospel is offensive. And it's offensive because it is proclaimed and the truth of it says you know what in your own self in everything you've tried and all the things you're struggling at you can make no progress toward god where every religion in the world would say listen you do this every guru in the history of the world do this and you can get to god live this way and you can get to god this is how you're supposed to live and then you will find god christianity comes and says nope nothing you do matters you can't get there. But let me tell you about everything he's done so that you can stand with him. That's the gospel. And coming to the place of knowing you can't earn it, merit it, work for it. You can only be received by faith or you are lost. You remain lost in your sin. Well, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk because he knows undoubtedly people will be like, Paul, you can't say that. And he'll say, yes, I can say that because Habakkuk said that. And when you study Habakkuk, you find out uh, he gets that from Abraham in, in uh, Genesis 15, 6, and then you realize this isn't Paul's theology. It's, it, it goes all the way back to Abraham, and it's Moses' theology, and it's David's theology, and it's the prophet's theology, and it's Jesus' theology, and it's the apostles' theology. And guess what? It's the theology and doctrine here at Bethel Bible Church. God has done it all to be received by faith in Jesus. One. Writer calls faith the, the the hand of the heart that receives what God is giving it 's important to realize much more is promised than just forgiveness if it 's just forgiveness, then your, your your slate is wiped clean, and now you, you go and you, you, you try to fill it up with good, but no, no that 's not it. Not only have you been declared righteous you 've been um, given the righteousness of Jesus. Paul says that you're, you're more than just pardoned and released, but left to your own devices to make your way in this world. He comes and says, No, you've been taken off death row, and now you've been clothed in the perfection of Jesus, and that is how you now are seen. And I wonder this morning if you've believed that. I'll tell you about the last major crisis of Luther's life. It happens in 1520. And um, in the intervening time, there, what has happened is around 1517, there's a guy… So, Pope Leo's um, on the… He's the Pope in Rome, and he wants to remodel uh, the um, uh, St. Peter's Basilica. And this is when Michelangelo is going to paint the murals, all all of these things. But he needs some serious cash to do that. So they come up with this marketing strategy to decide, okay, well, this has been this thing out here called indulgences that we've you know utilized for some pious people. But maybe we could market that, exploit it, and and send a guy who's our best preacher out to raise money. And so they sent a guy named Tetzel, and he ends up being in Germany for a while. He's going from town to town, and he's telling everybody, hey, listen, I, I can shorten your stay in purgatory. I can get your mom out of purgatory. I can get your granddad out of purgatory all you got to do, you can buy these indulgences, and these indulgences are free passes. And he would say things like, when every time a, um, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul in purgatory springs. He was a good alliterator. And, um, so, but because of this, it, it, it upset Luther so terribly, and so in a fit, he sits down and he writes what now we know is the 95 Theses. He goes and he nails it to the door at Wittenberg, or at least that's the, that's the story. And, um, but he'd, he'd written them in Latin, and, and his students, who they loved Luther. They took it. They took it off the door. They translated it into German, took it to the printing press, and by uh, three weeks' time, it had spread all over Germany. And then a few weeks after that, it lands in Rome. And Luther finds himself in a terrible mess. And so he begins to write more and write more and defend his theology, which he's sure the Pope is going to agree with, but he doesn't. And in 1520, what they do is they declare Luther a heretic. They ask him to come and stand trial. He has to go in hiding. And in 1521, there is this thing called the Diet of Worms, but it sounds much differently when you do it with a German accent. And it's this council convened. It's like a, it's like a uh It's like a trial. And he's going to stand up before the Pope. And what the Pope wants to hear and only wants to hear is that Luther, you're going to recant these things that you're saying. You're going to disavow them. You're going to say they are not true. Because what Luther had said is you can't earn your way to heaven. And you can't earn anything by buying indulgences. You are wholly dependent upon the righteousness of God that has come through the gospel. What is the power of God? It is in the Son, Jesus. And it can only be received so Luther stands there and says, you recant or we're going to burn you at the stake. And there's guys out there and they're building the the pyre to burn him on. And he says, well, can I have 24 hours to think about it and to pray? And his prayer is recorded and he says this to God that night. I am yours and this cause is yours and I belong to you. Give me the courage to stand and help me be prepared to lay down my life for your truth. Oh God, send help. And in a fitful night, as he wrestles all night long, he comes, is marched into a full room, and he stands before his accusers demanding he recant. And he says this, or some version of it, unless I am convinced by the sacred scriptures and plain conscience, I cannot recant. My conscience is held captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. And I'll tell you by God's grace, this commotion takes place. Luther ends up being kidnapped by friends, taken hidden out in the attic of a castle for um, several years, enough time for him to be able to take the Greek and the Hebrew and translate the scriptures into German language for the very first time so that men and women, just like you, just like me, we are able to have the, the Bible in our language so that we can read it, so that we can encounter the gospel, we can understand that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who would believe because we're in it. The righteousness of God is revealed ready to be received by faith this set the world ablaze the gospel spread everywhere we are the products of that this morning and i would say if you're here and that you hadn't experienced the power of god for salvation you you, you don't know that yet you 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 haven't come to the place of going, okay, you know what? I give. I, I, I can only come into the presence of God by receiving what he has given. You can do that this morning. It, you, this has not passed you by. You can this morning. Right where you sit, with the simple words of, I believe. I believe this. I'd love for you to tell somebody about it. On the other side, we'll have elders just outside that door. As Johnny said, we'd love to pray with you. but But don't leave this morning without... Responding to God's Spirit, if He's working in you. I'm glad you're here. I look forward to this study. I can't wait more and more of what Paul says and unpacks this amazing statement in Romans 1 16 and 17. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray? Father, thanks for the time we've had this morning. Pray you do what only you can do, that the gospel would be clear and heard and Father the truth of who your son is and what he's done for our salvation would be received so that we could be clothed with your righteousness become sons and daughters of the living God be indwelt by your spirit and know the joy of the salvation that you have afforded us Father only you can And so we ask the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power.